0: <laughs> Tonight, I'd like to f- speak on my favorite topic me. <laughs> Meing and mying. Uh, the concept of I, ego, self, a little bit. But first, I want to read a poem to you that I think uh, expresses uh, what, I, what I think has happened to some degree on this retreat, and what I see when I look out into the room now, and yet it also contains with it a um, caution, and the caution part is the part I'd like to speak about tonight. And it's a, a very wonderful Hafez poem that's called, Cast All Your Votes for Dancing. I know the voice of depression still calls to you. I know those habits that can ruin your life still send their invitations. But you are with the friend now and look so much stronger. You can stay that way and even bloom Keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companion's beautiful laughter. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from the sacred hands and glance of your beloved and my dear, from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. Learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days on end like a broken man behind a farting camel. (laughs) (laughs) You are with the friend now. Learn what actions of yours delight her. What actions of yours bring freedom and love? Whenever you say, speak of the divine, dear pilgrim, my ears wish my head was missing so they could finally kiss each other and applaud all your nourishing wisdom. Oh, keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companions' beautiful laughter and from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. Now, sweet ones, be wise. Cast all your votes for dancing. So it is my contention that uh, you have hopefully um, uh, begun to associate yourself with, to get used to, to to begin to rely upon uh, the capacity within your mind to, uh, to be present, to clearly comprehend what's here, to know what you're feeling when you're feeling, feeling it, know what you're thinking when you're thinking it, know what you're hearing when you're hearing it, to, and this is the friend. The friend is uh, your own inherent wakefulness. And because you've been associating with the friend, you look so much brighter. And because you've been putting the light of that, uh, that friend on your experience, uh, squeezing drops of the sun on and attending to your own holy body, you look healed to a certain degree. But he also warns in this poem to asks us to begin not just to begin but to continue to recognize the counterfeit coins that may, may buy you just a moment of pleasure but then drag you for days and you know you remember the rest usually when you think of the counterfeit coins we think of the uh, the kinds of the the myriad uh, desires that we f- try to fulfill and fall under the what the buddha called the misplaced faith that they will make us uh, permanently happy but they always leave in their wake they always leave in their wake a feeling of of loss and plant the seed or condition our mind to continue to want more and more and it leaves us all in this kind of ro- endless rolling wheel of Waiting for the future that never arrives. Endlessly in a state of, of hoping and waiting and expecting. And that's very exhausting. And so that's what we usually think of, the counterfeit coins, things that we think will make us happy. But what really is at the heart of the Buddha's realization was the deepest or the, you could say, the the most... Um, important counterfeit coin that we fail to notice, that we fail to understand. Uh, And this is the counterfeit coin called me and mine, the counterfeit coin called I. So here's what I left you or didn't actually leave you, but part of what I spoke about the other night was the night of the Buddha's awakening. And I spoke about how he sat there and faced the, the uh, temptations of Mara, the different hindrances that presented themselves. And I alluded for a few moments to what he began to notice about not just the specific hindrances their, and their, um, their ephemeralness, but he started to notice not just about what moods and thoughts and images entered his mind, but everything that that he noticed, everything, he began to see that everything was marked by three um, characteristics, sometimes called the three marks of existence. And this recognition became a cause. Became a. It became a. A, um, it became a springboard to letting go. It became obvious that it was foolish to, uh, to keep seeking for refuge, for relief, for peace in things that are insubstantial. Because he, as he scanned his body, you know he was there and he's feeling that whole field of sensations. There was not one sensation that was permanent. Every sensation. And he, of course, in the general sense, in the larger sense, he knew that this body was a rent body not permanent. But he began to see that in the most intimate way that this, this what we call our body because the proximity of observation is usually, we usually view very generally and from a distance, it appears solid. And any one of us, if we were to put these bodies under a microscope, you would start to see that there's, there's a dynamic world. And if you kept increasing the power of the microscope, it would come to such an ex- to it would come into the deepest power, the greatest power You would not find anything there. And it's because of the, you could say, the lack of observation but more the proximity of our observation that the world as we know it appears very solid and we as we experience ourselves appear so independent and separate from one another. But he began to see that every element of the physical body was in a state of constant flux. And, anything, and therefore, he could not rely on his body as a source of refuge, even though we, generally speaking, it's a wonderful refuge uh, that's a, because it orients us so much to the present moment. But true groundedness is not being in the body. True, true groundedness is being present. Anyway, don't you don't think? Please don't think about that now. <laughs> One of my teachers said, "True groundedness is spaciousness." So he saw that the physical experience was marked by in, by impermanence and change, constant change. And he saw that anything that had the nature to arise and to pass away, anything that was marked by change, could not be reliable, could not be a satisfactory place to, uh, rest, your, um, to, to rest your sense of well-being on, your, to rest your identity on. So it was marked by the second characteristic, besides impermanence, the second characteristic is called dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, unreliable in this case. And finally, because the body is in a constant state of change, it could not, uh, one could not rest their identity on it. It cannot be me and it can't be mine. Now, of course, conventionally speaking, your body is not my body, right? But if we look very deeply at the, at the nature of our body, it doesn't belong to anybody. It's just going through its, its own process. Now why do we talk about this? Why do we, why do we even, why would we want to see that the body is, that our body is not, um, is not ours? Because one of the deepest sense of identification, that which we think we are, is tethered to our body. And what is true about our body, it's always changing. And if, so, if, if our identity is tethered to something that is always changing, isn't it true that we would naturally feel very insecure and anxious? Consequently, even this holy body, what on one in one way, without this body, we couldn't know any of these things. It's holy. It's, it's to be loved and respected. Nevertheless, it is a, you could say it is a counterfeit coin. Gives us lots of pleasure, but, then, but drags us for days, <laughs> for years. He saw the same was true of the whole realm of moods and emotions, all those different states of mind, the, the glorious ones, the, I talked about the great states of unmixed happiness, to the, to the torments of the mind, or the so-called defilements of jealousy and envy and rage and all the states, he saw that those were also from the vantage of the friend, from the point of having the Capacity to know what's going on. He saw that those experiences, uh, those moods, are, they arise as sometimes associated with a story, sometimes just as a felt sense, but it arises as a story. There's often the felt sense that follows and they arise unbidden, completely uninvited. And they stay for a while they tell their story, and then they pass away. Where are all the feelings you had on this retreat? <laughs> As Jack Cornfield says, "They're back with the Pharaohs." <laughs> but he saw that those experiences was that which we so much uh, think is me, saw so those were marked by impermanence, can't cannot find any reliable sense of rest in the changing experience of moods and emotions. So they're unreliable, they're dukkha, they're unsatisfactory as a source of ultimate happiness. And clearly, if they are just appearing and disappearing, not to even be found when we look for them, they cannot be, they cannot define us. They cannot, we cannot rest our identity on them. Say, this is me, this is mine. We see with the power of attention, this is not me, this is not mine, this I am not. This is what happened to the Buddha. And then the thoughts. As that one statistic says, we have 65,000 thoughts every day. And he, I think it was probably, maybe less at the time of the Buddha. <laughs> I don't know. But it's also said that 90% of those are repeats from the day before. Do you think there is a an, an little agent in there, a little thinker in there that's saying, now think the same 60,000 thoughts today as you did yesterday? With slight variations, it it becomes, and I know all of you, we can laugh about this now because you've all made that profound shift from being simply carried along by that stream of thinking to noticing, oh my Lord, look at this. I'm sitting here minding my own business. Where did those come from? Joseph Goldstein used to tell people when they were troubled by all their discursive thinking, he says, just, just imagine that you're, it's coming from your neighbor. <laughs> but they come so obviously unbidden. They think themselves. The feelings feel themselves. The sensing senses itself. The thoughts arise and are known. Consciousness of thinking happens. And then the thoughts vanish and the consciousness that notice that that vanish. And what's left? After your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises. So can that thought that we can't even find when we look for it, just like the feeling, impermanent, unsatisfactory cannot rest on that idea whatever that idea is it may be it's wonderful that we can think no doubt about that but to to uh, assume that there can be any kind of reliable happiness or well-being in a in a thought counterfeit coin So in the sitting under the Bodhi tree, the Buddha saw this is impermanent, unreliable, and these thoughts are so obviously marked by the third characteristic, anatta, selfless, selfless. These are just thoughts thinking themselves, just thought machines. And I know that over the course of the retreat, as as there's a little more space in the mind, more space and the thoughts are known and they are recognized as thinking themselves more often then they're not taken quite as personally they're not we just naturally don't judge ourselves as much when we see how they just come all by themselves but when we when we're in unawareness or our minds are untrained every thought comes we think yeah i thought that and the really the really dark ones they're my fault <laughs> see even that it's my fault is another thought even the thought it's my th- fault is just another thought but the buddha saw through all that as you are as you have in your own way and because he saw that there was there was Nothing in any of that that could be clung to, really, as, and owned as mine, as me, as this is who I am, when he saw that it was all changing, his mind stopped grasping his attention. He just stopped taking ownership of what was going on in his mind and body and, and moods. and and this this moment of you could call it disidentifying doesn't mean distancing it doesn't mean cutting off it doesn't mean suppressing it just means no longer grabbing on so tightly it was the opening of that as i think i described it that fist of grasping a tremendous space opened up a freedom which allowed the unleashing of his compassion, his love. And that compassion is what moved him to basically give his life over for the next 45 years to help point other people in the direction of what he realized. Not to, and it's especially important to, it was important for me that that, uh, all that time that he spent teaching, he was constantly telling people, don't believe me. It was not about adopting a new religion or new views. It was, look here, look here. This is, this is what I saw. See for yourself. This is only for those who are interested to come and see for themselves. There's a chant that's done every day. Ei passiko, come and see for yourself. I found that so relieving that I didn't have to join anything. <laughs> I didn't have to believe anything. Yes, the world has too many believers. This is the cause of so much conflict. And so that unleashing of compassion, love that Mark spoke and expresses so beautiful by his nature, came through the direct experience of the non-separateness of things. Because the emptiness of, in, of an individual self, the absence of that individuality in our mind and body, energetically, experientially, when we experience, even for a moment, a cessation of that self, reveals to us the uh, that there is, in fact, no other. No self, no other. That there is no independent I that exists apart from everything. As Thich Han says, we enter our. We enter our with the clouds, with the sun, with the, each other, with, the, with all the elements of earth, the air and fire and water. But it's because of this mis- Identification, not recognizing uh, the counterfeit coins, all that we cling to as I, me, or mine, not recognizing that. So our practice is a very slow, uh, a very gradual process of. Of moving from the narrow world of taking everything personally, do any of you relate to that taking everything personally? <laughs> so when I think of the narrow world of of taking everything personally, I think in terms of preoccup- being preoccupied, being lost in my own little virtual world of uh, how I refer everything that's happening to what it means about me. If the room gets quiet, it's about how great it's making my practice. If the room gets noisy, it's how it's ruining my practice. Everything gets revolves around uh, this, the central character in the narrow view uh, called me. And... It is in that preoccupation that, we, that our minds begin to um, have the experience. When we are self-preoccupied, have a, that misplaced identification, it's then that we feel that we have somehow um, got cut off, separate from the flow of life. We're somehow were that as they talk about it in the Hindu tradition, we are the, the one wave on the ocean that somehow gotten separated from the ocean. <laughs> and then we in our in our innocence, in our love of ourselves, we have to we have to search for the ocean again, not remembering that we are immersed literally immersed in every moment in the very thing that we're searching for. That the wave can never be separate from the ocean. That it's just an idea that gets generated because of a case of misidentification. I I had some old notes. I got most of my uh, Dharma talks, stolen out of my car in September for the second time. That's pretty much 28 years wiped out, but I had one with me in the church when I was teaching, and I have the top page of that talk right here, and it has the name of a poem that I used to have (laughs) called Bugs in a Bowl that I somewhat remember, but I'd like to just try it, and see if I can remember it for you. But every time I you know, see the name of something that I've lost, I get that little sting of, of loss, of dukkha. Uh, but it goes like this. Uh, we're all um, bugs in a bowl. All day, uh, swimming around our bowl. You know, running around our bowl. Climbing up the steep sides, sliding down, climbing up again, sliding down hanging out in the bottom of the bowl, head in our hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for ourselves, or look around, see your fellow bugs, say, hey, nice bowl. We don't even realize that we're like bugs in a bowl sometimes. But it all comes home to roost when we come to practice. So there have been poets over the years like Rumi, who, who's always calling people back to sanity. He says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence flow down and down in ever-widening rings of being. So why do we stay in prison? Why do we keep running up the sides of the bowl? (laughs) Because this is what our conditioning is. It's based on our our traumas, the way that we've been spoken to, ways that we've been taught, ways that we've thought we have unconsciously innocently taken birth literally taken birth in our in our ideas in our stories our stories are fantastic all of our stories and our capacity to tell stories to think about stories to share our stories with each other fantastic but we have so much believed our story that we've lost touch with the simple reality of who and what we are. And part of that story, a story is so much tethered to our body. And our body, as we've just been discussing, is changing and insecure, impermanent, unreliable. We have, our story has been associated with our moods. They're insecure, changing, unreliable. And time, as long as we are identified with our body, time is running out. And our story is all about time, isn't it? Where, isn't our our whole narrative about how we've gone from The past, we're passing through the present on our way to the future. (laughs) Isn't that our conventional view? But where is the past now? Where is the future now? As we see in meditation practice, the past is, there is no such thing. There is only an unfolding present. The past is just a thought that arises in the present that we call past and then we throw it somewhere behind us. And then the future doesn't exist except as thoughts arising in this unfolding now, in this unfolding present. Somehow, through a quirk of perception, a quirk of our, of our mind, we throw it somewhere in front of us and then get this picture of being on a linear path from past through the present to the future. Unfortunately, this this um, this method of creating our identity and our mind this way has just increased our sense of shakiness. Because, as I think we've mentioned before, the future unborn. So much of where we're aiming is a place that doesn't exist. And there is always that possibility that it won't relieve whatever needs relieving. And so we're left with a feeling of anxiousness, anxiety. So the whole construction of that little version of ourselves that plays in our mind is that one, it's the construction of something that doesn't really exist. Someone who doesn't really exist but it is by virtue of what where we dwell in our thoughts in that little world that linear world of time it is uh, it's very insecure and that insecurity that it leaves us with that anxiety that that sense of trying to find relief in and trying to find a sense of identity and anchoring in things that are always in movement and that And in time that doesn't even exist, when you close your eyes, you don't know what time it is. That's why people often have a shift in the perception of time when they come on retreat. Because the whole concept begins to to break down a little bit. It's a very useful concept, believe me. But it has no absolute truth. So we're all shaken. Our... Identities are shaken. The sense of ourselves is shaken. Moment by moment, we end up being quite shaky. And because of our lack of training up to this point, there's a lot of good news in this talk, I promise. (laughs) Because of our lack of training, up to this point, we have not gone directly to that feeling of shakiness and insecurity the residue of where our mind has dwelled, where our hearts, where we've put our faith, the effect of feeling like we're the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. We haven't just felt that and let that be uh, received in the ground of attention, in the ground of compassion. Instead, we have... Uh, as a way of seeking relief we 've continued that mission to get somewhere else to either devote our whole identity to the acquisition of something a role, a title a a, a fortune. our identity view gets caught up in um, in a in a stream of what the Buddha called bhava, or becoming, constantly in toppling forward into that future that uh, never arrives. As Alan Watts says, he reminds us that our practice, this is about learning how to, as he calls it, uh, dig the present, groove with the eternal now. He says, otherwise... He says, do you think people make music in order to reach the end of the comp- composition? Do you think people dance in order to arrive at a particular place on the floor? <coughs> when we dance, the dance is the point. When we make music, the music is the point. And the same is true in our awakening. The point of life, in, our, in truth, the point of life is always arrived at uh, in this present moment. So identity is a, a house of cards. This version that plays in our mind. And the, the beauty of meditation is we can begin to notice the way that we construct ourselves moment to moment. How we make a self. How we, a knee pain arises and almost as quickly as it arises, it becomes my pain. Sadness arises and it becomes, I'm sad. Now, if we were to have a conversation, you wouldn't say to somebody ordinarily, sadness arose. (laughs) you say, I'm sad. And that's a way that we connect. But meditatively, we look at things a little bit differently. Not differently, but more directly at what's actually happening. And we at least know for ourselves that sadness is sad. Sadness arises. Thoughts appear and disappear like clouds passing through an empty sky. Like a footprint of a bird in emptiness. Where are they? Like a dream, like a bubble. Nevertheless, we have very deep, deep practice at the construction project of self the psychological view of ourselves. And we all have one, and it's, it, and like I said, it, each of our stories is beautiful. Each of our self-views is, is unique. But the problem with them is they describe, as I said before, they describe someone who, someone who uh, it's a virtual version, it's not somebody who actually exists. That doesn't mean to say that you don't exist. You are all here, each person here is uh, so individual and unique, an expression of life that is, could not be any more um, unique and different. And when you feel yourself here, when you're really here, you may feel a whole range of sensations. You may be aware of the space in the room. But you will notice that after your last thought of yourself, idea of yourself has ceased and before the next one arises, whatever you discover in this interval in this space between your thoughts this is who you are this is your direct and immediate experience this is the unfiltered experience not filtered through the as my, my teachers called the graveyard of memory and the one who you are here is not describable It's not reducible to a narrative. In fact, most of the ways that we define ourselves and describe ourselves are insults to what we discover when we feel our immediate, the truth of our existence as we sit here. And our practice is really about seeing the difference between what you are who you are and the view of yourself that plays in your mind, what the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, self-view. The self is an idea, it's a view. As James J. Audubon put it, just to put it maybe in a more accessible way, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guide book says, believe the bird. (laughs) (laughs) Or as Anagarika Munindra, wonderful teacher from India said, and I think most of us can relate to, to this, a thought of your mother is not your mother. The same is true of ourselves. See, I, I, at every retreat, uh, I think Mark was alluding to this, and I don't—I well, don't remember now. But it happens to me every retreat. I basically fall in love with everyone, <laughs> and I know that what I'm seeing. I see the, the light. Not just the light. I see all the whole mishigas, mich- all the stuff. But I know that what I'm seeing and connecting with and falling in love with and appreciating what you actually are. Of course, I shouldn't be so bold as to think I see you for who you are. But I know that what's actually showing up here is so different than the version of yourself that's playing in your mind, the one that has created a. Um, usually, that version is uh, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong. This this, I'm not. This moment's not. Something's not quite right. And most of us carry a basic fundamental view. I'm. I'm. I'm not okay the way I am. And if we, anybody have that, a version of that? <laughs> and don't we also have a, a um, some kind of condition? If, if I was like this, then I would be okay. If I had more, if I became this, if I got rid of this. So the story of me, the Sakaya Ditti, I talked about it before. Sometimes it's, we're proliferating in our mind about what I have to have to be happy. And it's all about creating our identity around acquisition. And as, uh, this, is what happ- this is the result of this. As, as uh, a teacher named Sri Gadatta put it, as long as we believe that we need things to make us happy, we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. Pleasure is a distraction for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as there's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of meditation is to reach a point where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, obviously, is based on actual ever-present experience. Can you, exp- can you sense now, after a few days of practice, a little taste of, there is nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. If you, if you think otherwise, what is the evidence right now? that something's wrong with you and that you have something to worry about. So we can see, even in the midst of our, all of our gains and losses, praises and blames, all of our insecurity, there is, a, there is a space. There is a moment of just being present. A split second, a half breath away. As Rumi put it, out beyond our ideas of right-doing and wrong-doing, there's a field, I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. So that character in our mind that's that's has the one of the the planes of existence that the Buddha described as the plane of the hungry ghosts, the beings with little mouths and huge stomachs that are in, and a lot of our activity is, and we is is that kind of search. That's the activity of the imagined version of ourselves that's convinced us because and because of a lack of recognition of that story, we we believe that they have to have something to be happy. And if it's not stuff, it's it's love, seeking love. Hafiz says, admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, Love me, love me. Of course you don't say this out loud. Otherwise someone would call the cops. <laughs> Still, though, think about this, the great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with the full moon in each eye? That is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. That full moon, that moon in your eyes is a split second away. You are that. And this is what we fulfill and discover in each moment of being exactly where we are, knowing what we're, what we're experiencing. And when we, ta- we begin to touch that immediacy, we start to see the difference. We know a lot about ourselves, but in our practice, we get to know ourselves directly and it's really hard to describe that what can you say about yourself right now if you don't consult your memory all we can say is i'm here i am or but usually the story is there's something wrong and that uh And usually, if there's something wrong, we love ourselves. We go searching for relief, and we keep being born into the drama of trying to find relief. We're just we're so innocent, and and but almost every movement away keeps reinforcing that feeling of insecurity that maybe I won't find relief. So what we do in practice is we notice, oh, here my mind saying I should be different than the way I am. Oh, that's the, that's the uh, that's eyeing and meeing and mying. That's, uh, that's selfing right now. I'm, that's the creation of self. That thought is, is selfless. It's just a thought. And instead of saying, how did I... Now, this is very helpful sometimes. How did I get to feel that I had, should be so different than the way I am? and we can all reflect on our memories and our, the, the ways that people treated us. In fact, I brought along a, I think I did anyway. You see that the whole sense of that, that one who's not enough, it's, it's born of the past. This is from Sharon Olds, it's called Diagnosis. By the time I was six months old, she knew something was wrong with me. I got looks on my face she had not seen on any child in the family or the extended family or the neighborhood. My mother took me to see the pediatrician with the kind hands, a doctor with a name like a suit size for a wheel. Hub long. My mom did not tell him what she thought in truth, that I was possessed. It was just these strange looks on my face. He held me, conversed with me, chatting as one does with a baby, and my mother said, She's doing it now, look. She's doing it now. And the doctor said, What your daughter has is called a sense of humor. <laughs> oh, she said, and took me back to the house where the sense would be tested and found to be incurable. <laughs> but we could spend a, a lifetime looking into our past. And there is some value in it, no doubt, to be able to tell our story, to reflect, and to connect with the whole feelings. But, to the degree that we dwell in our ideas of the past, we, uh, we don't find much relief. As another poem from Hafiz says, what do people who are sad have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What's the beginning of Happiness. It's to stop being so religious like that. (laughs) So we try to see the nature of thought, just as the Buddha did. The nature of the self-idea. To see the difference between the bird and the field guidebook. To to just feel ourselves directly, but then see the the emptiness of all those views of ourselves. I'm not enough. And so we examine the words I am not enough. Notice what happens after that thought has gone and before it comes up again. Any evidence for not being enough here in the room? Any person. I've yet to meet somebody that could produce evidence. So we take that thought, we see what it's made of. I am not enough. Five words enough not wait <laughs> not I am not oh it's, that's four <laughs> <laughs> let's just remove the enough remove the not remove the am and then we're left with what? I. Already feeling so much better. I. We're getting closer to home. And then just for the sake of our direct experience, we can just remove the I. And see that that view of self is not self. It is just a wisp, a cloud, a phantom, a dream. But it's helpful if we notice the the different kinds of self-views that tend to be the, the top tunes. And... Also, the ones that are most tormenting, and I would say the one of the biggest ones is the um, is the is the uh, comparing mind, what the Buddha called mana or conceit, a mind that that creates a version of ourselves, a version of ourselves that is either What he called uh, atimana, better than someone else. Or mana equal to, also pride. Or amana, which is less than. So this word mana, you can look it up in the... But clearly, this notion that really is so much a part of all of our lives, the comparing mind... Once we incarnate in the comparing mind of measuring ourselves, any kind of measurement, there is a sense of of dis-ease. We try in our practice to recognize rather than just be carried along by this completely false virtual version of ourselves that thinks that we can be measurable. There's not one person here that it makes any sense to think of you as above, below or equal. So we try to notice, oh, that's the comparing mind. And we try to have a sense of humor about it. Oh, I think I may have got it. Oh, here it is. This is the absurdity of the comparing mind, of atimana. And it just shows us that our, that the, our, our me making and my making has no, holds no bounds. You know, people will experience on retreats, they'll experience a vast sense of space at times. But then you'll notice that when they talk about it, so, sometimes I didn't find that with anybody on this retreat. But they'll talk about it and, and you can see that there's pride as though their emptiness is, is better than somebody else's emptiness. <laughs> So the capacity of our mind to, to me make and my make and to create a self around what our experience is, even the most neutral experience, the most non-personal experience, is it holds no bounds. This was a I found an interesting one. In June, this is many years ago, I may have even gotten this from Mark. In June, after the British musical group, The Planets, introduced a 60 second piece of complete silence on its latest album representatives of the estate of the composer John Cage who once wrote 4 degrees 433 273 seconds of silence threatened to sue the group for, for ripping Cage off <laughs> but failed said the group to specify which 60 of the 273 seconds it thought it had pilfered <laughs> said Mike Bat of the planets mine is much better is a much better silent piece <laughs> i am able to say in 1 minute what took cage 4 minutes and 33 seconds <laughs> here's two people in a monastery one saying to the other, When I was making money, I made the most money. And now that I'm spiritual, I'm the most spiritual. <laughs> so Rumi says, Enough with this. He says, Live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere and eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops, and you keep running back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap. Getting, getting always smaller, checkmate this, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. it may be a good place to stop. I often like to end talks like this with a few short passages, maybe I will, and then a little chant. The passages are, one is from a teacher named Kalu Rinpoche, and the other one is from uh, from the same teacher I spoke of before, Sri Nisargadatta, and Kalorimpache says, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, and you are that reality. And when you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. But being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And put in slightly more poetic terms by Nisargadatta, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between these two, my life flows. So we'll sit for a few moments and then I'll chant the, the chant of um, the words of Neem Karoli Baba uh, of coming out of the tangle and living in silence. silence. I am like the wind, no one can hold me. I belong to everyone, no one can own me. The whole world is my home, all are my family. I live in every heart, I will never leave thee, oh, crystal tears. Oh, taking away my fears. I am like the wind. No one can hold me. I belong to everyone. No one can own me. The whole world is my home. All are my family. I live in every heart. I will never leave thee, oh, 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 crystal tears, oh, oh, taking away my fears. May all beings see through the self-illusion. May all beings know that we connect with one another. May all beings be free. (목소리도) MBC 뉴스 박진주입니다. MBC <목소리도> 뉴스